week's episode is with Tom Lang, who is a science educator, and I had a really interesting conversation with him about what that means, what it is to be a science educator, and various other ins and outs, including a little bit of horticulture there at the beginning if you're a gardening fan. One of my favourite quotes in the world is a Dorothy L. Sayers quote. No, Dorothy Parker. I've been reading Dorothy L. Sayers. She's in my head. She's an excellent crime novelist. You should read her Lord Peter Whimsy series if you can. But Dorothy Parker is the one who has the quote about horticulture. She was challenged to use the word horticulture in a sentence and she said, you can lead a horticulture but you can't make her think, which I just made me... I'm so impressed by her ability to be that quick on her feet. Anyway, thank you everybody who sent really lovely messages over the last couple of weeks on email, alicerfraser at gmail.com or via my website. And thank you everyone who's started contributing to the Patreon. Patreon.com slash alicefraser is the place to go if you want to read my blogs or if you want to give me money. It's okay to just want to read the blogs. You don't have to give me money. Although um, I appreciate it immensely when you do, it means that I can buy tea for my guests and I can afford to host the podcast without it coming out of my pocket. And that is delightful and I really appreciate that. So thank you everybody who does uh, support me in the money form and thank you to everybody who supports me in other less money-based, more sort of abstract but equally important forms. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. And I really did enjoy having it. You're having tea with Alice. Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's guest is Tom Lang. Hello Tom, how are you? I'm okay. You were saying you've you've looked into growing tea? I've looked into growing tea because I was like, how hard could it be? It's just leaves. And um, in theory, not that hard. You just need to grow that little hedge, get the right kind of hedge. It's a callistamin or something. I or, or maybe some other thing starting with C. I forget. But you're not drinking uh, tea tea. Right now? Yeah. No, right now I've got some kind of peppermint licorice thing, which is much easier to grow. Both peppermint and licorice. Well, I don't actually know what licorice is. It's I assume a root. it's a plant as well. Yeah. Yeah. And they just process it into brown sludge. <laughs> I think licorice is like as we eat it, like the the the, the sweet licorice is mostly mm. molasses. Right. Which is wrong. also not too hard to grow. It's just sugar, right? It's just sugar. You can grow pretty Why much anything. Why are you growing everything in your garden? Um, I think I just like growing things. It's not some survivalist mentality. I think a little bit. Um, there's, I think I have a bit of the do-it-yourself sort of mentality, um, and so growing things is a very, it can be very easy to, you just put the plants in the ground and the sun does the work, if you're lucky, and the ones that don't work, you're just like, well, I guess I don't have the right soil for capsicums, a capsicum has failed really hard, but my lettuces are going fantastically, I have more lettuces than I know what to do with. I'll have a lettuce any day. You, I should have brought one. I should have. I have enough lettuces to make a really, really big, really, really boring salad. <laughs> I tried having just salad for dinner last night and I had about two or three bowls before I realized that man cannot live on lettuce alone. <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, there, there are sort of unintended digestive consequences to that much lettuce, I imagine, as well. I, don't, I feel okay, but I had to go get a bunch of potato gems as well just to fill the <laughs> hole. 
I like that. I mean, you could be one of those comedians that does a lettuce trick. There's a couple of comedians who I know who've done, you know, eating a whole lettuce on stage or yeah. just punching a lettuce to death or... Yeah. Which I've always thought of as sort of a wasteful... Is thing. that a genre? Oh, I'm not a lettuce comedian. It's not a genre insofar... I think what it is, it's, it's a thing that up-and-coming alternative comedians do as rebellion and think mm. is original, like getting nude on stage. Right, yeah. Messy, sort messy comedy. More specific prop comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I'd just be walking people through the principles of basic lettuce care. Yeah. I mean, it can be done well. Mm. You've seen I, people do lettuce as well? I've seen people do lettuce as well. I've seen people do eating chilies well. That's always mm -hmm. a, a fun sight gag, watching somebody eat chilies and then try to deliver a piece. There was the room based entirely around that premise. Yeah. Mm. So it's that thing where I think always the people who are doing it think that they're the ones who are doing it for the first time. Yeah. I it don't makes know how it I feel raw. About that. I think maybe a lot of comedy can get a little bit uh, rehearsed. You see someone doing a really good bit and you're like, but you've done this bit 30 times before. Yeah. But if you see someone doing it while eating a chili, it's got an element of, even though it's not very original, it's just mm. someone a little bit in pain, mm. um, it's it's more sort of real. It's like improv where you're like, improv is funnier than it would be if they'd set it off a script because you know they're saying it for the first time. Yeah. So, I mean, there's two lines that I think are worth, two lines of argument that I think are worth having off that point. One is, uh, I, I did this gig in Edinburgh, which was running on a treadmill, mm. doing comedy, mm. running on a treadmill. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I have the video of that. If anyone wants to um, message me, I'll send it to you. I can't put it up online because there's someone walks in front of the camera a bit. So it's not great quality. Right. But they just amp the treadmill up till you're sprinting. Yeah. So you're doing five minutes, and Panting it really and changes puffing. your rhythm, really changes the delivery. You it makes cut out jokes. all the all the, fat. Cut out the extraneous <laughs> stuff. You punch it out. You really punch yeah, it out yeah. hard. Uh, and I really enjoyed that because it shakes up your whole idea of what mm. you're doing on stage and the physicality of what you're doing, and the parts of your stance that get built into jokes that you feel like are necessary. And then how do you deliver that stance while running? Yeah, it totally, I guess, changes your perspective on everything. It gets you out of your comfort zone. Posture and attitude mm. status shifts. If you're the one who's, I mean, it sort of makes you lower status, so you have to play higher status. But you've got all those little funny timing bits with the breathing and your pausing and yeah, stuff like that. exactly. So that's I really found that fun. when I did the chili thing, you'd, you'd sort of get halfway through a sense and then have to wheeze and cry for 20 seconds, and most of the comedy came from that. Yeah. And you just had to hope that, that by the end of it, people remembered the start of the joke. Yeah. It was a great experience. And I, I think that's always useful to remember that you can just be funny hmm. outside of the jokes, hmm. that there's a lot of stuff that's around jokes that's funny. I think if you're, if you're only being funny in the joke, you're missing a lot. Mm. It's all those little... And some people, 90% of the humour comes from the little looks and the yeah. vocal inflections well, I and tend whatnot. To, I tend to think of myself as somebody who's not funny. And so my jokes are funny, but I'm not funny. So it's nice to remember right. that I can be funny. You're just a serious person telling funny jokes. Yeah. You're a funny person trapped in a serious person's body. Yeah, so that's the thing of like why I do improv <coughs> and I like doing improv occasionally or set list or something like mm. that and just to remind me that I have, I can just be... Yeah, I get the same thing. It's always pleasantly surprising to me whenever I do a, a fairly unscripted thing or come up with a joke in the fly and go, oh, I guess I can do this. Mm. I guess I am funny. <laughs> How did I forget? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And it's really, it's refreshing and nice and inspiring. The other line of argument that I thought was really interesting to come off the point you made before mm. about these people doing things that they think are original but aren't necessarily original mm. is the element of research in comedy. 
Because I think yeah. people come to comedy from different angles. There's some people who are absolute comedy nerds. Yeah. And so they'll know everything that has been done before. And then there's other people who come to comedy fresh. And so when they do a lettuce joke, they don't do it in the tradition of Andy Kaufman. They do it in... They, they're the first person to come up with this lettuce joke. Yeah, yeah, and so there's something really fresh and interesting about that, even if it's basically exactly the same joke as has been done before. Hmm. There's a middle point, I guess, um, because audience haven't done all the research. I mean, and I guess if you're doing your comedy to impress other comedians, then you've got to go a few steps higher. Yeah. Um, and then you get those people who've done so much research and they so, know so much about comedy that they're almost doing comedy shorthand, but then it stops being funny for, for the audience. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and look, there's always an audience who is ready to hear another joke about lettuce or Tinder or whatever the really cliche thing is. Um, I don't know where I fell on that when I did a lot of comedy or as much comedy as I did. Um, I think my approach was just to find the things... Because I was always a bit lazy to do too much research. I think my approach was just to find the things I was sure nobody else was joking about. The really <laughs> unfunny things like particle physics or dust mites or just gardening or something. And be like, how can I make this a bit funny? I was talking to Mitch Alexander the other day and he said you had an amazing bit on dust mites. It's one of my favourite bits. Okay. One of my few bits I actually quite like still. Could you break it down without it being de desperately uh, unfunny for the audience? Uh, probably not, but I like it anyway. It's just about how dust mites... And it, it is like kind of a trite bit, and it probably has been done before. The concept itself hack is not mind-blowing. Hack dust mites bit. Exactly, it's a hack <laughs> dust mites bit. Um, it's just about how dust mites are entirely reliant on humans um, because they eat our skin flakes, and mm -hmm. we're like these kind of benefactor gods to them <laughs> not even aware that they exist and then their judgment is when we vacuum them up and that's like judgment day to the dust mites but dust mites when they get vacuumed up go to a better place they go to a place that's all dust it's the land of milk and honey to dust mites and so i think dust mites could be justifiably religious <laughs> it's, i like it that's basically the whole like joke the <laughs> in different order yeah i like that i like that a lot um mm. I think that's very funny. Well, thank uh, you. So when you were saying when I did as much comedy as I did, do you want to explain to the T-Cast listeners mm. what your MO is and why I think you're an interesting person? <coughs> I actually don't know <laughs> entirely why you think. You'd have to tell me that. Uh, I'll have to fish for that I think one. it's self-explanatory. <laughs> so, yeah. I actually have been on a comedy hiatus for probably upwards of a year or two by now um, in terms of doing like stand-up comedy. Um, occasionally I, you know, dabble, I, I go on a panel or I come on a podcast or something like that. It's generally I've been invited to do a thing and I enjoy that a lot. Um, I just got a little bit over stand-up. It takes a lot of time. I was never that serious about it. It was just a, a fun thing to kind of get my skills up. But it's a lot of work um, and it's sort of more work. It, it's because you're well aware comedy is simultaneously a social scene and an industry. Yeah. And if you're only semi-committing like I was, you're sort of stuck in this weird middle ground where you kind of aren't really in the social scene, but you kind of are. So you know these people well enough to have to make polite conversation, but not well enough to actually know what to talk to them about kind of thing, um, which I struggle with a little bit. Um, and I just got preoccupied. I do a lot of, on the side, um, 
I say on the side, my main thing is science communication. Yes. So I work for science museums. I, um, so I've been very busy in that, like just trying to make science fun for kids, building things, which isn't really very comedy based, but still creative. And I really like it. Comedy is a means to an end. I mean, for me, comedy has always been about communication. Yeah. And I imagine that's something that appealed to you about mm. it as well. Yeah, it's about getting I could, an idea across. I could tell sciencey things in a comedy way. I actually got into comedy from science because I was doing a lot of science communication, traveling around the country, talking to schools, and cracking little jokes in among my, you know, physics of flight demonstrations. And I was like, this is kind of fun. People think this is funny. I wonder if I could just do this whole bit, just the jokes, without the, you know, hot air balloon. And, and the answer was. Yeah, I did it for a bit. It was a lot of fun. I really liked it. Um, did a couple of shows all about science. Thinking of going and doing another one one day soon. Don't hold your breath, but maybe. Uh, festivals or outside festivals? I think festival. Oh, look, I'm, I don't really have a strong opinion on that. A show, at, at least. I think my stuff generally works better as a show because um, generally if you want to talk to people about bigger things like science and stuff, you've got to get through... The explanation, and maybe you can build it up to quite a satisfying joke, but it's hard to do in five minutes. Um, to get, as I'm sure you're aware, you tend to deal with big issues as well. Yeah. Um, in a different way. Well. well, it's interesting with the social scene thing with comedy, because mm. I think I got into it at uni with improv and sketch mm. as a social thing. That's a great social thing. But then when I, by the time I started stand-up seriously... Part of why I started a stand-up was because I was in New York and I was depressed. Mm. So I couldn't be social. Mm. But I wanted to keep... Being around people? Being Doing comedy, basically. Right. Of that, that game was fun to me. But I couldn't organise, you know, an improv group or I couldn't... Mm. I just didn't have the energy to be friendly enough to make people want to <laughs> do sketch comedy with me. So for me... And then coming back to Australia with my mum being sick, yeah. I would go to a gig and then leave. Because you can get away with not being friendly as a stand-up. You can do your thing and get out. And yeah, if you deliver a lot. And it does hold you back because a lot of gigs get exchanged in the three hours after a gig. Absolutely. A lot of, oh, I heard about this or you're top of mind when, when, when the gig comes up. And that takes a lot of energy sticking around for three hours after a gig. And often that's like 12 at night and maybe you've got a thing on the next day. And it's hard to justify to people who actually need you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why this sort of amorphous hanging out with drunk idiots is somehow good for your career. Yeah, that's as much of the work of the career as the actual bit. And so I think my kind of solution to that probably has been to bounce around between cities. Mm. So then people don't expect to know you. Ah. They don't feel like you've failed as a friend. Yeah, they're always like, oh, Alice Fraser's in town again. Yes. What a treat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so then I get to do the job without mm. having to worry too much about the social... Which is not to say I don't have friends in comedy. Oh, no. But it is that, that slight sense. And I'm not sure how much of that, now that my mum has died and I don't have that as an excuse anymore, mm. is habit, how much of it is social awkwardness, a sense that maybe they wouldn't like me if I did hang out with them, how mm. much of it is laziness of, like, I don't drink, why would I hang out for three hours with people who are going to forget that I was even there? I can fully relate. I think I did very much the same thing. I can be a little bit, like, as soon as I find myself in a social situation where I'm like, oh, I don't really know what to talk about. Uh, this is a little bit awkward. I often just bail. Um, I tend to bail a bit. And also, I think once it hits about 11 o'clock, if I'm not having fun, I just get tired and I'm like, 
I'm just going to go home. But I have made a lot of really good friends through comedy. Most of my good friends that I have right now are, are through comedy or one step removed. Um, yeah, I think comedy self-selects for mm. people who have a divergent view of the world mm. and who are interesting and also degenerates. Uh, yeah, <laughs> people who you can be comfortable with not having a job around kind of thing. Like, I didn't do medicine and they're all like, I didn't do medicine either. And then you can all be friends about that. <laughs> I don't think I've ever bonded with anyone about not doing medicine. I bonded with a few. Really? <laughs> I didn't do medicine. As a science educator, is that sort of one of the implicit... No, I don't think so. But certainly science communicators are a similar gang. Um, I really love science communicators generally as people. And they strike... There's, there's occasionally crossover. Not really that much. Because I think being a science communicator involves being... Uh, like extroverted and talkative and thinking outside the box, but it doesn't involve being funny necessarily. Uh, yeah. And that's fine. You can be a very good science communicator without needing to be funny, mm. but it's a bonus if you are, I think. I think it's... But there is... I don't know. Some people are comedians because they can't be anything else. Mm. But some people are comedians because they're obsessed with communicating ideas, of getting an idea across or wrestling with an idea. And, and those are sort of my favourite mm. comedians. And I think that's the urge that science communicators have as well. Definitely. And I think science communicators are also sort of... Uh, they're like a, another forgotten industry where you just have to make your own way. Just like comedians, you might be on the radio, you might have a, a column... You might just be yelling at people it's, on a stage. It's that very much the portfolio career. Yeah. Um, and you're constantly having to sort of reinvent yourself a little bit. I just finished a contract at the museum. Um, and now I'm in a little bit of transitory state where I'm like, what do I do now? Do I make YouTube videos about science? Should I start a makerspace and teach kids how to build robots? Should I go back into comedy? I don't know. I'm working it out. Yeah. And, um, and that the only thing that sort of is a straight line between what you do. So you say, I was on the radio and then I was on a boat. Then mm. I was in a museum. It's all It's just you and the brand of you and how you yeah. communicate ideas. And I guess that's like comedy where you've got to somehow build up yourself as a brand, which is a concept that's always made me a little bit uncomfortable, um, but probably one I need to get better at. Um, same as science communication, you probably need to be a brand if you're going to do what I'm doing. Yeah, I find brand an uncomfortable term. Mm. I prefer reputation. Yeah. Because I think it's essentially the same thing of, of what yeah. is your reputation? What do people know you for? What do they trust you with? And I guess I feel that the terms feel different to me. I feel like reputation is, oh, you know, Alice Fraser, what do you think of her? Whereas brand is more like you've heard the word Alice Fraser yeah. and that's good enough kind of thing. Yeah, I don't want people to want to buy me. I want yeah. people to want to know me mm. and to trust me with things. And, you know, I would like people to go, oh, Alice, oh, yeah, she was really good at that thing. I heard her about that thing. Or I don't know her, I don't know her but I've heard of her. I heard she did this thing. Like mm. that sort of more amorphous and almost personal morality based thing i think brand is a way of of giving maybe brand is for the public and reputation is within your industry no because i want i want reputation in the public i don't mm. like the idea of a brand at all brand is sort of like oh you can put your face on some makeup it's fake yeah it yeah. is it's about it's about okay so here's the thing you know how they have this you know legal fiction that corporations are people <sighs> Yeah. which is incredibly 
problem. I'm not going to say problematic because that's a word that I'm sick of. But yeah, it's problematic. Troublesome, troublesome to me. Worrying. The dubious, concerning. Um, (laughs) But then the idea of a people as corporations as people. Mm. So brand is like the reputation. The Oprah Winfrey kind of thing. And I don't, I don't think I need to go through being a corporation to be a person again. It's really and. Yeah, because I can see the appeal of stage names because then you can know who you are and who your who your brand. I'm sorry, I'm going to keep using that yeah, one. Yeah, who sure. your brand is. Yeah. But if your if your stage name and your own name are the same name, I wonder if it's easier to forget who you actually are when you're on and off stage. But that's that's what I'm. I don't want to have it. You don't want to be divide. a different person. So I had a friend in New York who is now a Twitter celebrity, be. and he puts a lot of time into mm. you know you retweet certain people and you say certain stuff, and and he said to me, oh you should just do that kind of tweet. Mm. It'll build your brand. Mm. And I'm I said I said I'm not interested in being a brand that is only part of my personality. I'd rather be I'd rather my brand be complexity. You want someone to like you for all your flaws. With all of the different angles of... So, like, I don't get a lot of internet trolls. Mm. Like, I really genuinely don't. For being a lady in public on the internet Mm. with opinions... I hear it's dangerous. ...about things like, you know, feminism and religion and all And you have a lot of opinions. I have a lot of opinions. Like, what are the trolls... Why are they wasting their time on everybody else? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They should come for me. But I think it's partly because if I have a brand, it is complicated measured Mm. long form Mm. so it's not the kind of you have to listen through a lot of thoughtful podcasts to (laughs) find something to hate alice razor for (laughs) but yeah exactly it has to be in context of other stuff everything's in everything Mm. that i'm interested in is contextual or based on a number of steps and you're never trying to make it simple for people no and so i get these amazing emails from people who listen to the podcast which are sort of seven or eight paragraphs Mm. long but I never get the like, fuck you, fat bitch, stuff. Right. Because you haven't made yourself a simple person, so you can't have a simple argument against it. Yeah, it could just be that I'm not famous enough to get <laughs> like that is. Let's go with the other one. But I, I, I feel like that might be one of the reasons, is that I'm not super easy to, mm. to caricature. I like that. Because I guess if you're trying to make yourself easy to digest and easy to like, You've just got to make yourself simple, which also makes you easy to hate, I suppose. Yes. Um, because all we know about almost any celebrity is almost nothing, um, which I guess means it's easier to forget that they're people or easier to like them or hate them for very little at all. It's astonishing when you have c- celebrities who are very open about their inner lives, like the Kardashians, mm. who nonetheless seem to be very simple. I honestly have not kept up and I can't really comment on the Kardashians. I haven't watched any of their stuff, but I do know that, that certainly people find them easy to hate. There's a real window into their lives. Yeah. People find them easy to hate and then you don't know how much of that reality television stuff sits in the editing as well. Yeah. I don't trust it. I don't trust any of this television stuff. Don't, ooh, don't trust the camera, <sighs> steals a bit of your soul. Because peop- it's, I guess, any portrayal of anything has got to be just a little bit I don't want to say propaganda, but kind of, you're not getting the whole story. Well, the nature um, of mediation is that it's yeah 
edited if it's coming through something it's like i learned back in my archaeology days it's second and third hand sources and no one is ever getting a first hand source anymore we're rarely even getting a second hand source we're getting something through twitter through buzz feed through huffington post yeah and then they're all coming off the same source. i wrote an article for this about this uh, on sbs about a year ago now that was um about the fall of the front page there was uh, there was a thing mm. where a bunch of very reputable news sources in australia used a picture of a man who was ripped off his facebook page a man who was accused of being a terrorist oh and it was the wrong man they took the wrong picture because the news cycle so fast it was a picture that was on his facebook page with a friend and they used the picture of the friend ah basically oh. <laughs> and it was on about five front pages was this I'm trying to remember. It was the thing with the plastic sword. Oh, no, I don't know that one at all. In Brisbane, I think. I must have missed that little tragedy. The point was that because the news cycle was so fast, mm. these sources, which are meant to be going firsthand... It's cutthroat. It's completely... It's mm. completely untrustworthy because they're going maybe from the wire, maybe from the news wire, which and is already a secondary source. And it's sort of the same thing with... Like you said, people trying to get more more brand, more followers on their Twitter by retweeting other things and just it's it's the um the publicity version of like the stock market where you're not doing anything, you're making money by shuffling money around, and this is trying to make publicity by just shuffling other publicity around, and in the end, you end up with a whole lot of numbers which people can ascribe some meaning to, but in the end you haven't created anything new. Yeah, I find that uh, sort of so the, ultimate, the ultimate outcome of all these kind of social media, all, all the social media things at the moment are just advertising. That's how they make their money is off advertising. Mm. But we're coming to a world where most of our material needs are being met with very little manpower. Mm. And so most of the jobs that are going to exist in our economy are going to be jobs that are basically building billboards professional attention to advertise other billboards yeah we're in an attention economy <laughs> um where the thing everybody wants is your attention or your clicks or some indication of that you've paid attention to their ad or whatever um and it means we've created like a gamification system uh which is really worrying to me because whenever anything gets gamified it always ends up totally perverting its initial purpose um, it's like you can, um, I'm just trying to think of a good example, like Pokemon Go, right? You're meant to walk around and find Pokemon and get some exercise and have a good time. Finding the Pokemon is almost incidental to the whole thing. Um, they're just a little reward for walking around. But if you prioritize finding the Pokemon above all else, you can just hook your phone up with some GPS spoofing app and just click a few buttons and collect all the Pokemon you want from the comfort of your couch. But you've ruined the entire experience for the sake of the Pokemon. And suddenly all you've got a worthless Pokemon and you've lost something else. Yeah, very rarely is short-term satisfaction going to take you towards long-term satisfaction. Mm. Very rarely can you quantify something valuable. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things when I was briefly trying to make a life in the corporate world. So in, I was in the HR employee relations um, department at UBS, mm -hmm. which is Big Swiss Bank in New York. I was an intern, so I wasn't very high up the ranks. I saw the show. It was very good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, and then I was in a big law firm in Australia. And 
part of what I was doing in those places other than sort of continuing along the train tracks that had been laid out for me by the environment of being at Sydney University Law School. And that's the obvious thing that you want to do is you want to get into a big firm. Mm. Uh, was thinking maybe I can find a, a place in this, in this environment, in this atmosphere, in this land of corporate where you can figure out how to quantify happiness mm. because these are the structures of large corporations as people they've been built only to respond to financial levers mm. so they are they have no emotional levers they are sociopaths you are when you're working in a large firm you're an organ inside a sociopath mm. you are the liver of a sociopath and you can't and blame the liver for that, but still. But still, exactly. And so everyone in those corporations is not responsible in any way, but mm. they are all part of this functioning... Sociopathic Voltron. And they can have feelings, but the corporation can't have feelings. Mm. So how do you build in a parasympathetic nervous system... It's incredibly difficult. ...into a, a, something that has been structured with no inputs that are other than what can be measured. And it's... it's um. I wonder if it's just money is so easily quantifiable, so it's easy to value, so it's easy to move around. Um, and you get a similar problem with the environment where it's like, oh, but if we plant a tree, that's worth $100,000 over the lifetime of that tree. But it's not worth that money to anybody specifically. But you can make 30 real dollars right now by cutting down that tree. Yes, ex and very, very people don't think two or three steps down the line in terms of if you're working inside of that corporation with no feelings, that has no feelings, that depresses you and you're more likely to have this kind of nervous breakdown in the future mm. and that'll cost the company X amount. People can't think that far ahead. But also, just what you said <laughs> just then, that money is really in easy to quantify, actually, it kind of isn't. Mm. If you think about it too much, if you think about anything too Let's much. Let's think about it too much. <laughs> Let's think about it too much. But if you think about money, it's basically an illusion for the most part. Oh, absolutely. It's agreements based on agreements, based on loans. None of it's real based on a Based on a theory <laughs> that if you gave this much gold to another man, he would give you this much stuff. Yeah. It's a tokenized favor. Yeah. It's, it's basically the idea of value of money is, is when you come down to the, to the fundamental thing, it's like the... The reasonable man theory. A reasonable man would look at some gold and assume it was worth this many sandwiches mm. when there is no man in the world who would look at gold and give you sandwiches. Yeah, that's fair. Except and depending on how hungry he was and depending on how hungry you were and depending on... like All of that stuff's actually relatively illusory and based on... Oh, yeah. It's totally pointless, but you can tell when you've got more of it. Yeah, <laughs> but how could you? why would you not base it on a different system of value? Of like happiness, <laughs> for example. Because, yeah, no, I'm fully with you. I'm just going to argue on the side of money for a second because you can't quantify happiness. So how do you convince somebody that they're getting a good money deal? either. But you can. You can say you've got five money and I've got ten money, so yeah, I've got more you, of that. Say you said uh, money of happiness mm. was the amount of happiness you would get from giving a puppy to a child, mm. the amount of happiness that child would get on average... It's no more unreasonable uh, measurement than the amount of sandwiches you would get for a gold. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but we haven't, uh, we haven't locked down our puppy-child um, 
economy yet. Yeah, that's like, true. And I can also see a terrible dystopian future where it's just these miserable, tortured children being handed puppies on a Ah, no, but then, then they're unhappy because of too many puppies. It's a decreasing return. Um, it's inflation, man. <laughs> puppy inflation. Make the puppies bigger. The puppies have crushed the children. Nobody saw this coming. <laughs> Tragedy of the commons. <laughs> it is the tragedy of the commons. I don't know what the oh, solution that, is. That damn tragedy of the commons. I, I don't know. Has anybody solved it yet? I don't think anybody's ever solved it. And that is... It's going to get us all. Uh. Well, yeah, it is... It is. I mean, joking aside, it's a terrible disaster and we're all going to die. Mm. <laughs> but it's Just fun to think steer about. Steer away from that one. It's steer away from the existential breakdown. So what is you? You're now in the middle of a kind of a transition period. Mm. Um, but it's one of those happy transition periods where where I have enough sort of. I have still a little bit of a casual thing uh, at work. We have you know, like, an agreement. Um, I have a little bit of savings, and I don't have that. Oh God, I need to find a job in a week, or I start to starve. I'm okay, so I can have that really kind of nice privileged safety net thing of being like, I'm just going to do a bunch of stuff and see where the next few months takes me. That's nice. That's it's a so real, nice. Mm. That's a really good position to be in. Uh, I like I like that you're in that position. You're, you're a good egg. And so you're doing pottery. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one of the things. That's, that's just a little bit of a personal treat because I like making things. I'm like, now I have a little bit of a holiday. I'm going to make some things. Um... So I'm doing a bit of pottery, doing science a pottery, not just pottery, comedy pottery. <laughs> no, it's mostly animal pottery. Um, I'm mostly just making little animals, <laughs> a little frog plant pot, and a little fish cat bowl, and just a little octopus that sits there. Playing God, ones. trying to create life yeah. from clay. And I like creating things. I like making stuff with my hands, and it's funny because you can't make something. Look, I guess you could try to make a funny pot, but I don't think that would be a very good pot. You shouldn't try to make a funny pot. You should just try to make a good pot that appeals to you. But there's... And if it's funny, that's a bonus. Yeah, there's sort of that feeling you get when you make a funny joke where everything comes together right and you're like, I've made a good thing that only I could make right now. And it's that when you make just a really nice pot. It's not a basic pot. You've done a pot with a twist and it just feels nice. Yeah, mm. so it's it's not uh, the joke is not good because it's funny. The joke is good because it's a good joke. Yeah, it's satisfying in a different way, but it has a similar feeling to like. And I guess making a joke is an, is is also crafting in its way. It's just crafting an abstract concept, um, and it requires just as much sort of like skill and practice and techniques. And just like I'll look at a pot somebody else has made and be like, oh slab pots i didn't know you could do that i'm gonna make one of those you can hear a joke someone else tells and be like ah oh, the pullback and reveal i'm gonna try that one next time yeah mm. I'll, I'll i regularly when i see other com i don't watch a huge amount of other comedy mm. uh, but when i do i i usually find it fruitful mm. I, I go through phases input and output phases i think of it like either i'm watching comedy and reading books and listening to podcasts and absorbing art and going to art galleries on the weekend and just you know eyes open one valve in building in, up in, a in. critical mass of inspiration and then i shut down all of the input valves and just yeah go like a steam train just shit it all out into 
art and blogs you've, and stuff. You've, you've crushed it all into a tiny diamond of nugget of, of whatever you're making. Um, and I guess if you can get enough input from enough different places, it has the semblance of originality. Yeah, I think the problem at the moment with the kind of technologies that we have is that they compromise the integrity of your valve seal mm. on the in things to Absolutely. keep coming in even if you want them to not come in. It's so hard to have that moment to sit and digest without being like, mm. ping. Yeah, what's th- what's up next? I find I, it's a cliche, but I get a lot of my best ideas happening in the shower because that's when I'm forced to not use a phone. Yeah. Or at bed when I'm trying to go to sleep. I'm like, time to think of those when things. When you're making out with someone. Yeah. Never? Uh, that's a bit overstimulating in itself, I think. Oh, look, occasionally. <laughs> um, Have you ever yeah? rolled over and gone, wait, 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 I need to write this down. <laughs> um, I do have the bad habit of, like, thinking of something funny at that point. Absolutely. Um, often unrelated. Just texting um, behind their back. <laughs> and generally, I make sure that I'm with people who are good enough to understand and appreciate that sort of thing. Moment of inspiration. Yeah, because I the don't trick think is to to um to hold their face hmm. and go, "You're my muse," and then <laughs> and then write it down. Everybody loves being a muse. You've inspired yeah. me. <laughs> the worst thing is when they're a similar person, and then you both get distracted and you start riffing, and then you have forgotten to keep making out of whatever it is you're doing. <laughs> But that's also you know that's like it's brain great. brain making out. It's riffing is moment. brain it making is, out. It is. It is. Yeah, and then you can go back to normal making out afterwards, which is also normal good. making out will wait. It's always there. It's isn't always it? there, mm. wherever there are two wills in a way. Yeah, um, bunch of lips. But this is one of the interesting things about creative partnerships, and I talked about this with uh, Clang, w- with Will Anderson on his podcast of the fact that I think part of the reason that a lot of Again, not not gen not. I'm generalizing, but not not hashtag not all X. Yeah. Um, a lot of heterosexual male creative partnerships are more fruitful, mm-hmm. and they're sort of more of a normative thing. Mm. Uh, other than the fact that there are just more. Yeah, of I was going to say there's just more of the men. Is because part of feeling uh, attracted to someone else's brain is borderline romantic, mm-hmm. and in fact, there's there's no real and distinguishing factor between that kind of intellectual romance and actual romance other than not banging. Yeah. Well, and also I think you might have some different um, uh, prerequisites for the two. Um, but absolutely, you, th- you think maybe it's like guys are bad at expressing like friendship or love or things, but they're quite good at expressing let's build a thing. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. The way I put it is like we could either we can go into a room together mm. and either write a sitcom or mm. bang, and it is yeah. a lot easier to bang. Like it's yeah. just less time consuming. Man, sitcoms take for friggin' ever. Yeah. So, but it also sort of explains why when creative partnerships go bad, mm. non-romantic ones, they mm. they often like a breakup. Mm. The, the intensity of the emotions is so absolutely it's very huge. personal. Huge. Of like, I don't want to work with you anymore. Is like, I don't want to be married to you it's anymore. It's not you. It's your ideas. Yeah, it's not you. It's just that you're not inspiring me anymore. We're I met someone with much bigger, more virile ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a really, it's almost worse than yeah. not being physically attracted to someone anymore. Because that's not something you can control. 
but just that you're not interesting to me anymore yeah. or, or we're not interesting together anymore is such a devastatingly personal mm. attack. It is an interesting one um, because the... I'm going to probably investigate this metaphor further than it, it, it should be. Um, but it's the what this podcast's all about, fueled by peppermint tea. <laughs> yeah. The physical relationships and romantic relationships always have an aspect of biology and hormones and things like that, which is very much not under our control. Um, whereas, do intellectual ones have something similar? I guess that is just down to your particular compatible personalities. But I think personalities are also often informed by hormones more than we would, more than we would hmm. like to think. Good point. And so maybe you have your like up creative times and down creative times. And your, and you know, like I, your aggression or your drive mm -hmm. or your empathy, all of those things that we think of as inherent to personality are actually very That's a good point. hormone dependent. So your makeup of testosterone and estrogen will mm. dictate whether you walk past a crying baby Hmm. whether you you know start crying when you look at a sunset mm -hmm. whether you're like let's fucking call that manager and like make them listen to our idea yeah all of those things that are let's attractive make some sketch about, comedy yeah <laughs> all of those things that are attractive or unattractive about people that we think of as super in like i read this fascinating article years ago but it made a deep impact on me from a from a woman who was originally she'd she'd um She'd been on hormones. She was a bodybuilder. She'd been on testosterone as a bodybuilder. Mm. And then she was getting fertility treatment. So being injected mm -hmm. with estrogen to uh, stimulate follicle growth so that she would make more eggs. Mm -hmm. So this, the, the difference in her personality between... Right, yeah. Between the two states. Did she change, like, her friends and things? Yeah, she changed her friends. She changed her attitude. She changed the amount that she cared when she had fights with people. Mm. She changed her attitude at work. And the other really interesting people to read on that stuff are trans women or trans mm. men. Yeah, I've read a few of those. experienced that real, not just the social attitudes to you, which is she didn't have any change in the social attitudes to her mm. as a woman. She was just a woman on testosterone or a woman on estrogen. Mm. Uh, so there wasn't that kind of confounding factor of how the world treats you. There was just her internal mm. kind of experience of the world and her things that you think of as, you know, I like babies. Mm. As that as might not, not be you. That that's might not yeah. be you. That's yeah. just the amount of estrogen you have in the system at any given time. You know, I'm the kind of person who cries at movies. I, you know, I won't stand for any bullshit. Mm. Like I will stand my ground rather than like letting someone walk all over me. You think of that as really you, but it might not be at all. Yeah, it's really a worrying thing is the um, the amount that your biology almost uncontrollably plays in your life. Um, and you can do all the sort of, I don't know, I guess, any kind of education and socialising and mindfulness and things like that is trying to steer that or... Uh, you know, if you're a naturally very aggressive person with a lot of testosterone, you've got to learn how to control that. Um, but you cannot turn it off without changing that person's biology. And it's it's a tricky thing. Uh, trying to get humans, which are, you know, naturally fairly biological things, to work in a very abstract system 
that should make sense, but doesn't because it's full of humans. Well, I mean, I've had this argument many times before with men, mainly, mm. uh, of, of logic mm. versus emotions mm. and this illusion that logic is real and emotions are not real. Logic is neat, mm. but logic is a frame that is built on top of the real world. Yeah. Which is why it's neat, which is why it can be neat. And emotions are actually real. Yeah. So pitting logic against emotions and saying logic should win is pretty irrational when, you know, logic is never going to make you faint or vomit. Or, or happy or sad. Or die. Yeah. You know, whereas emotions can make you do all of those things. Yeah, I guess logic is, is sort of how the world is, what the world is putting out and emotions are sort of what you're taking in. Um, and they're just two halves of the of the perception thing. Yeah, but the the, the sense that. And you can't argue, I, you can't say we should live in an emotionless world because unfortunately we don't. Unfortunately. Uh, unfortunately, that's my, that's some of my biases coming through. If the world was run by robots, gosh, it would be simple. No, they could just spend their time doing pictures of melting to, dogs. To Greek philosophy, ethos, yeah. logos, and pathos. Like you need, you need to have both the logos, the structure, mm. and the pathos. Why do you care? Mm, absolutely. Like and no that's the thing is, the point. robots wouldn't care. Yeah, there's no point to structure if there's no meaning to the structure. And I think emotion is just, uh, and in fact, pretty much all your drives are just a little biological trick to keep you caring. Because there's no real reason that you should do anything. Except you've got these little things that say maybe you should do that thing. And you say why and they go, just do it. Just do the thing. Even scientific methodology, the de your decision to research one area over mm. another area is not logical. No. You're not interested in snails because they're the best thing to be interested in. Because you liked snails when you were a kid. It's because when you look at a snail, it makes you smile. Yeah. Or it makes you filled with rage. Or <laughs> you're confused and you need to understand more about snails. That All of that stuff is so emotion-driven. Mm. I find it interesting when people try to compartmentalize. It's sort of, um, it's that problem of explaining, explaining fundamental forces. Um, and you've got your fundamental forces of human existence, which are things like, you know, your need for friendship or acceptance or food or to have sex or revenge or whatever. Um, and they're things that you can't break down anymore. Like you can rationalize them and say, oh, you, you want to have sex because you've got to perpetuate the species. But that's not why you want to have sex. You want to have sex because you're human. Yeah. Um, and if you try and ignore those things or, you know, work around them because they're hard to explain, it's pointless. Um, and it's the same issue I have whenever I try to teach any kind of physics to children Children love asking why do things happen, and that's all well and good most of the time. Uh, I'm like, oh yeah, levers work because this, and then the ball bounces off the wall because this. Until you get to a fundamental force like gravity, and they say, why does gravity happen? And I'm like, it's because objects with mass attract each other. And they're like, why does that happen? And I'm like, I don't know. Nobody knows. We can't. We're working on it, but it's not going to be a satisfying answer. <laughs> um, magnets as well. How does a magnet work? I've read the Wikipedia page. I barely understand it. It's something about spinning electrons, but it's not a satisfying answer. You've just got to, at some point, say, these are the fundamental forces. You're going to have to work with it. Yeah, yeah. And to get to a sort of the human element of that, it's like, why are we having this very logical argument? Mm. 
because you care about this argument. And arguments are fun. <laughs> and arguments are fun and because you, you feel like you can get somewhere with them and you can mm. bounce your own brain off somebody else's brain. Mm. Uh, I feel productive doing a podcast on a, what is this, Wednesday? Wednesday. A sunny day, you know. Yeah, I mean, my podcast is, uh, is super helpful to the world. Yeah. It's a social enterprise Someone will listen sorts. to this and I'll be like, they make some very good points. Get them on TV, improve their reputation. Yeah, we should totally do a series. Mm. Well, that series, Pathos and Logos. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm. The scientist and the lawyer. All right, where can people find you online? Uh, where can people find me online? Do um, you want to be found online? No, no, no I can the first be found. Question. Uh, my Twitter is... Shoot, was it? It used to be Langham High, which How do you not know your own Twitter? That's because like not I have your a lousy size. brand, Alice. <laughs> <laughs> I've, been, I've been out of the system. I have that luxury of not having to be a good comedian most of the Do time. Do some brand consulting. Yeah, oh, I could use that. Uh, here we go. I'll bring it up. Lang Around. I'm now Lang Around, which is pretty much spelt how it sounds. It's a combination of science and comedy and board games most of the time. Um, and if you want to look at my Instagram, it's also Lang Around, so that's easy. Yeah. Lang, L-A-N-G. L-A-N-G. No around. invisible eye. There's no, no eye in Lang. It's exactly how it sounds. It's a last name that exists in like 15 different languages. You can't go wrong. It, where Do you know where it's from originally? Mine's German? Scottish. Oh, Scottish. Yeah, like old Lang Syne. Exactly. But <laughs> there's also the German Langs and the Chinese Langs. And I think there are some, you know, indigenous Australian Langs here and there. There's a lot of Langs. Good. Look him up. Lang around. Uh, thank you for having tea Thank with you me. so much. This was lovely. Thank you.